that early period of my life in and around college, for me, was filled with a tremendous amount of anxiety, um, not knowing what I wanted to do with myself. There was a sense of go- when you went to university, you had to have, you know, your 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 career set. You know, you wanted to know where you're going, what you're going to do, what you're going to become. And I didn't have a clue. Uh, had no idea, and it was it literally kept me up at night, particularly at 18, where. I think people maybe feel a pressure that they have to have it all together. You don't. They're, as a 45-year-old now, I can say, still don't have it all together. It's a, it's a work in progress, and it probably will continue to be that way. That's Josh Summers, and this is the Yoga Life Podcast. Hello, how are you? I hope you're keeping well. Today I have with me Josh Summers. If you're a fan of yin, you're going to like this one. Josh is a yin yoga teacher. He's a qualified and licensed acupuncturist, I struggle with that word, and a meditation instructor. I am a massive fan of his podcast, Everyday Sublime. Uh, I was struck by how professional it was you know that there's what i love about doing this podcast is that you get to talk to people that you admire and whenever i have someone that i look up to i always ask myself what is it about them that sticks out that stands out and people have different traits that makes their teaching exceptional the one word I would use to describe Josh is professional. Everything he does is done to the best standard possible. You go onto his website, you uh, joshsummers.net, and you'll see every workshop is sold out. When you're a self-employed person where it's seen as uh, not as secure as being employed by someone else, to know that you can host an event and it be sold out is phenomenal. And that's the stage I want to get to. So I wanted to find out about Josh and learn how he got to the stage he's at now. So my background with Josh is I went to his 50 hour yin teacher training about two months ago. And not only was he very professional, but he's really funny which I wasn't expecting because I I thought someone who seems uh, quite, um, I suppose, strict, you could say. Like when, when we did the teacher training, he was very polished. Everything was done um, almost to a military standard, which is a, which is a compliment. He wasn't airy-fairy all over the shop. And I thought, oh, blimey, I bet this guy is, uh, I better watch my P's and Q's around him. But the geezer was like a stand-up comedian. He was really, really funny. And I thought, oh, man. So this guy's mixing um, uh, the the most professional teaching standard I've seen with being very funny. So you can do the the two. Um, And I know being funny isn't all (laughs) be all and end all, but I think it's important to have fun while you're teaching yoga and and learning so um yeah i I really enjoyed this this chat with josh um you'll see from the you'll hear from the podcast that he starts to it starts off with a very 
uh, formal <laughs> as we exchange questions and answers and then we become a lot more loosey-goosey and uh, have a, a lot more fun towards the end of the podcast. Um, so I'm trying to um, have fun with my guests but also um, not be just messing around too much either and actually learn from them. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, if you do, please leave me a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And I know I say that every week but to give you some context as to why that's important I don't make any money from this podcast and it does take me a while to produce them and try to do it to a high quality so that you enjoy the experience. But, um, you know, one day I would like to get a sponsor and the sponsors look at your ratings, your what people say in the comment sections, what they write in the reviews. And I, th I would really help me if I could produce this podcast and it actually create a small income for me. Um, so I, that's 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 the truth, really. So your kind words act really, really help me. And um, yeah, I, I just if you had a chance to leave me a review, I'd really appreciate it. If you don't, I just I'm flattered that you would take the time to listen to me anyway. So either way, thanks so much for for listening. Always, I love it getting emails from people with feedback, with questions, and um, and I feel like there's a little community here that we're slowly building together. So I'd love to hear from you. That's enough from me. Here's Josh. So let's do this. Hey Josh, how's it going? It's pretty good, Kevin. How you doing? I'm very good, thank you. Um, thanks so much for taking time out to speak with me. I'm, I feel like we're even more bonded now that we're both nappers. <laughs> we did establish that um, pre-recording <laughs> that we both are not, probably not amateur, but maybe in the in the in the level of professional nappers. <laughs> yeah, I think it's um yeah a good skill to 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 um, cultivate, especially if you're a yoga teacher. Um, so I did your training a bit of background. Um, two months ago, it must have been about that now, was it? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, over over in Dublin it was the fifty hours at Hot Yoga Dublin, and that's how we first met. But I had heard about you way before that through your podcast. And um, it's, I actually, I, I mean to ask you, um, why did you start a podcast? Why did I start a podcast? I, um, it's a good question. I, uh, I kind of wanted a way, well, one of the things was I was changing the structure of how I was teaching my own trainings. And part mm. of the structural change was that I was going to integrate an online learning component where prior to coming to a live module people would take um, an online course through on my website so in the development of that I was having to create a lot of audio content and in the midst of doing developing all that audio content um, it was recommended that said well why don't you just turn this into a podcast <laughs> so yeah. I basically took some of the lessons that would be included into the online courses for my modules and and just cut them up a bit into podcast format and then it kind of has sort of taken on a life of its own now where i'm i am starting to conduct interviews as well and um explore other realms of the yin yoga practice yeah. and you get you get also gives you a really good chance to speak to people and to, to network um, because I've learned so much. I feel like I build more of a connection with someone 
through audio than I do through a website or Instagram uh, because you get to hear things more in context and how your podcast is is is, is how you were like it was very um, professional very polished everything was done to a really high standard and even before I did the course with you doing the online um, work beforehand was really well structured so that I, I often find that although Instagram is really great and for certain things it's, it's quite limiting right and that you know that's part of the other I think motivation for the podcast was that um, for a long time in teaching particularly teaching trainings I I felt like people were coming uh, coming live coming to the live event with um, no real connection or contact with me so it was sort of a leap of faith on their part <laughs> on the consumer's part like, who is yeah. this character and <laughs> what I found is the podcast is just a wonderful way for people to have a, a free act sense of me you know and access to how i think how i teach um and sort of builds a sense of trust before people mm. arrive um so i think that's yeah. that's helpful yeah absolutely. and and to your point too and probably your experience with the podcast like what you're saying around what you can't achieve with social media whether it's instagram or facebook is the podcast itself is in, in some ways a very intimate medium because people are usually tuning in with earbuds in and uh, the voice goes right into the head. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's a, a, a much more um, yeah, intimate uh, dynamic that's established, which is great. Yeah. And, and I also, I think, given the profession of being a yoga teacher or a trainer, your voice is so important, and particularly in yin, because people often are, you know, they're... Um, they're holding a posture for a long time and the way you speak i feel affects the emotions of the people in the class so how your use of language your economy of words um, goes a long way and then when you hear someone speaking through a podcast you um, get you get a sense for what their teaching style is like i feel yeah that's right i mean and, and what you just picked up around the the significance of a teacher's voice specifically whilst teaching yin i think is is really crucial um we talk you know in, in regular yoga you might talk about physical adjustments but i feel like with within teaching yin yoga the teacher's voice is kind of a very gentle but um supportive physical uh, energetic or mental adjustment in a way it's mm-hmm. sort of gently yes, guiding and nudging the student in a, in a direction um during their practice yeah that's an interesting point um you know I, i've been th- really thinking about rethinking about why i started a podcast and what i realized is the main thing i found the main opportunity it gave me was to speak to people that um, i find are interesting and find out more about them almost outside of yoga I like as in who were they before they did yoga what did they do when they're not doing yoga uh, and just how they came to this point because um, you don't really get to learn that much um, about someone because everything we put online as professionals is aimed at yoga so I wanted to start from the beginning which I suppose is always the best place to start um, about your your background and before you got into yoga so 
Um, you you live in Boston now. Are you originally from Boston? Yes, I am originally from not Boston proper, but um, I grew up south of Boston in a small little suburb called Marshfield. Um, and for those of you that are listening in Ireland, uh, Marshfield had a high density of Irish living there, and it was known it is known collectively around Massachusetts as the Irish Riviera. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. It's right. It's it's down. It's on the South Shore. It's on the coast, um, some halfway between uh, Boston and Cape Cod for bearings. Mm, that sounds nice. It is nice. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And what age were you when you first started doing yoga? Uh, that's. I think formally, I was probably uh, nineteen or twenty. I was in. I know I was in college. Um, it was what happened basically was I was dating a woman who um, had a book on Shivananda yoga and um, I remember one day sort of casually flipping through her book and um, all these postures reminded me of stretches that I used to do when I was a goaltender in hockey I played ice hockey as a kid and Mm. and I hadn't because I had quit hockey maybe five years prior to that point um I hadn't done those poses in a long time. And I remember just thinking, what would it be like to do these now? And sort of there was a reconnection to using the body that way um, in college and sort of picking up the, the, the postural practice at that point. So when you were 19, going into a yoga class, how was your first experience, if you can remember? You know... Um, Going to a yoga class didn't come till later. Uh, for, a, for at least a couple of years, I was practicing out of either that book or out of Light on Yoga and just sort of yeah. doing my best. And um, it, if my memory is correct, so during college, I spent um, one year abroad in Cork at UCC. And um, I was sort of doing my self practice at that point, but then some point during that year, a, um, a friend let me know about a public class that was being held in some gyna- gymnasium. And I can't really tell you too much about this class because I don't remember a ton of it, but um, it was taught by this very old man who was probably in his late 70s or early 80s, and he would stand on this rickety children's desk um, <laughs> guiding people to go, go through poses. And it was a huge class. And I just remember thinking, that's pretty, pretty fantastic. Um, but it really wasn't until I got back to New York after that year in Cork um, that I thought, okay, I really need to find a, a proper class and um, discovered the Iyengar Institute of New York City um, and started, started uh, morning classes once a week um, downtown. Um, and you know, you asked about what it was like the first class, you know, I just remember feeling as many people, I think feel just completely transformed in an hour and a half where, Mm. you know, my body felt longer and kind of stronger and mind was pacified in a pretty, pretty profound way. And what felt prior to class, like, like maybe the world wasn't going quite right, um, Suddenly, the stepping out back outside into Manhattan felt like oh, everything was uh, flowing in its natural way. 
Yeah. And with um, you, do you still practice Iyengar? I, I can't really say I practice Iyengar at this point. I, I do occasionally do what I would call yang yoga practices, sort of active yoga practices. And certainly mm. my background in Iyengar influences how I approach that. But I, it's been a long time since I've taken a traditional Iyengar class. And did you, were you quite hardcore into it? Were you going, um, did you go, so you said you went once a week, did you go for many years? Well, that, that would have been, that was my last year of university, so my, what we call our senior year here. Um, mm. That was my last year that I started taking formal Iyengar classes, and I was doing that quite regularly and practicing on my own. And um, after university, I was trying to figure out a way to go go study Iyengar yoga in uh, in India. Um, and I t- kind of took a circuitous route where I went to Taiwan for a year and made some money just teaching English. And, mm. um, and then pr- just prior to leaving for Taiwan, I found a, a teaching position. It was teaching seventh standard or sort of middle school at a school in India um, mm. for a year. And I, so I, after Taiwan, I... I went over to India and taught seventh standard for a year and then in a way kind of snuck into the Iyengar Institute that summer after. Um, and that, that was sort of when I really got into it. But for me at that time, I would say the only yoga that existed or the only legitimate yoga that existed was Iyengar yoga. Everything else seemed kind of, um, not rigorous enough, not specific enough, not deep enough, not spiritual enough, not serious enough. If you, if mm. I don't, do you have any experience with Iyengar yourself, or is it mostly? No, I I only did one workshop with a chap called Greg Walsh, who owns a studio here in uh, called Samadhi, um, and um, yeah, it was really interesting. I, I loved all the 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 prop usage and the alignments and how specific and precise it was. Um, we actually did one session where we've been part of the workshop where we were blindfolded. I'm sure that's not a standard Iyengar work uh, class, but um, it was um, it was very interesting because it made you think about your alignment in a completely different way. So I haven't actually been to a, a regular class. Mm. Um, there's not. It's quite difficult to find in Dublin. I think because the the market here now is we're so new to yoga relatively speaking uh, as in yoga is new to us should i say uh, therefore a lot of studios have hot yoga or they have yoga express and these things where you can get people in get people out don't use many props don't worry too much about alignment just get people sweating and more of a workout that seems to be the the more popular type of yoga in Dublin at the moment. So finding Iyengar classes is actually quite challenging, I, I found. Mm-hmm. I think what you're describing is sort of a, a yoga-wide trend, though, where classes are getting shorter and shorter and faster and faster in some respects, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. when I was when I first got into it, you could get classes anywhere up to 120 minutes or two hours on fairly regular basis and then it then the 90 minute class sort of took over as the the standard default time um and now it's 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 down to 60 if not shorter 
yeah it's it's i suppose it's a difficult one if you own a studio because you want to get the people in and um do you do you try to cater to what people want or do you tell them what they should want um i suppose only in a studio only can judge that but i do think some things i don't know how like hot yoga i think has its benefits um but um you know you have things like hot yin as well and um what are your thoughts on hot yin, Josh? <laughs> Load, loaded question there. Hot yin. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> people, this comes up in trainings. Like, what is the um, the rationale of hot yin? Um, mm. From what I can gather from some of the fascial research, uh, there is a case to be made that the fascia, the connective tissue that envelops everything in the body, the fascia does remodel um, when and start to change more when, when it's heated. Um, the question is, when we apply it to that, the theory of changing the fascia and specifically using heat to the context of yin yoga, the question is, well, what layer of the fascia are we actually influencing? And um, when the body is heated up, the, the fascia around the muscles and the muscles themselves tend to absorb the range of motion that someone might be using when they are accessing when they go into a posture. And that could be fine for those layers, but what is likely not to occur is, is that the denser tissues in and around the joints probably will not be as stressed in a positive way as significantly when the body is that hot. So in general, and um, I think this is sort of the the standard view within the yin world, in general, we recommend um, that the body be relatively cool, not necessarily cold to the point of shivering, but not warmed up like in preparation for some act, uh, athletic activity, but just relatively cool where the muscles are, are sort of quiet and, and, and cool so that when you do enter a pose, the, the tissues in and around the joints um, receive more significant degrees of stress. Mm. In other words, they get exercised more in that in that cooler condition. But yeah. it ma- it makes sense. I I I feel that studios at some studios are trying to, um, you know, merge themes together so that it pleases, it gets as many people in as possible. Um, so I don't know. It's 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 a difficult one. And also, actually, I find it's very hard to just find regular yin classes here. Um, since we, I'm ashamed to say this, but since we did our training, I haven't been to a yin class uh, because my schedule won't allow it. I actually teach in the evenings and there's no yin classes in the morning or lunchtime. There's only, if you do a yin class in Dublin, you have to find them on say generally Sunday mornings or maybe Friday nights. Hmm. So it's, um, it's very difficult to find a regular yin class. I, I think we're still in that mentality of, I want to go to yoga and I want a workout as a, and, and I want to um, move really dynamically. And um, I don't know, I, I, I believe I, from all the feedback forms we get in the studios that I work in, people will write down, please more yin classes, please more yin, but um, it doesn't seem to happen, huh. which is odd. I do think, I mean, certainly since when I started teaching yin in the early aughts of 2001 um, 
I definitely see a greater increase in demand and interest in the yin practice. Um, and I, I think, you know, as I was listening to you speak just now, I, I think what really hasn't sort of solidified in the mentality or the mindset of most practitioners is an appreciation of a multi multi-leveled and multi-layered strategy for exercising the body so as you spoke you know you're talking about like people when they think they need to go to yoga they got to get their workout and they have a certain paradigm of how they think about what a workout is which is usually like getting some sweat on using your muscles uh, increasing muscular strength Um, but they don't necessarily include within that paradigm an appreciation of exercising one's joint tissue, which is where the yin yoga comes in. So, um, you know, I certainly try to speak to this and educate as much as I can around it, but I think it it may be just a sort of a, um, uh, maybe a, a, a gap in how the practice is contextualized in yeah. in terms of the larger yoga culture. Yeah, because, put it, I mean, think of it in this way, I don't mean to oversimplify it, but if you have an Instagram picture of someone doing a handstand or an Instagram picture of someone doing um, d- dragon, like right. what's going to get more likes, you know, what looks more spectacular? Oh yeah, yeah. It's, um, no, no. That, that's in, that's in, so people want to do the spectacular thing. In, yin yoga is not a photogenic practice. <laughs> it's the it's yeah, a, it it's an anti-photogenic practice. I mean, it's. I remember seeing this in, in a yoga journal article years back. So the author was saying that she only came to yin because she was chronically ill for a while, and there was no other practice she could do during her illness. But she said that there was something singularly unsexy about yin yoga Um, and you know I really appreciated that too because um, and I think beyond the the photogenic side or the sexiness of it there's not a lot in the yin yoga practice that will gratify one's ego you know like you know if, if people know the pose sphinx where you're sort of lying prone on your stomach propped up on your elbow so you're in a mild back extension now, this is a relatively, extremely modest range of motion. It's not a deep backbend. And, you know, you just stay in that for five minutes. It's great for your back. It's wonderful for your bones. It's wonderful for the discs of your back. But um, in terms of looking impressive or giving the ego a sense of accomplishment, it's a dead end. Mm. It just won't do it. And I think um, that kind of that side of the yoga culture right now that does want to somewhat inflate the ego or inflate this one's self-esteem, that's going to find struggle within the, the, the simplicity and non-sexiness of the yin practice. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, we're very driven by aesthetics um, in to some degree well to some degree it's unfortunate because we're not thinking about health from a more of a holistic viewpoint we're thinking about the six pack or the big backside or whatever it may be um, instead of like um, the health of our tendons our joints our 
ligaments and our muscles and, and everything you know long-term health yeah i mean and i i definitely you know had we had this conversation when i first started teaching i would have been much more um full-throated in uh, totally agreeing with what you just said um but i i do feel like the pendulum has definitely started to swing in terms of people's interest in meditation and finding that um the yin practice either functions as a meditative practice for them or prepares them to go into a more traditional classical form of meditation um Mm. and i I do think you know there's definitely the like we call it the pop culture of of yoga um where like everything Mm. you're describing like the the aesthetics and the um the, the 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 glamour side of the practice and then there's there's this i think a very rich sincere development of just everyday people who are looking for to calm down looking for inner peace a bit more you know sort of the traditional mm. things you might associate with someone who was drawn to the yogic path yeah and and i suppose having what the one good thing about having these classes that are i suppose more accessible you know they're 45 minutes or an hour and they're a flow class is that it gets people in the door and maybe one because this is what happened to me i got in my foot in the door i thought you know i'll do an hour class i i didn't want to do an hour and a half bitcram class that was just too long i couldn't fit into my schedule so i thought but once i did that hour class i started going to yoga fast forward years later and now I'm a yoga teacher so so sometimes maybe getting people interested in yoga to some degree whatever form it may take um, is good place to start and then if they can find out for themselves if they want to do yin or meditate more or, or take it however they want to take it yeah I think that's right you know get them through the door get them through give, give them the gateway drug and then they'll probably want to, <laughs> want to to go somewhere else and do and that's very common with so many of people that do eventually come to yin it seems that they yeah. that they've rarely do they start out as like yin yoga is the first class that they took and that's what they settled in immediately it's usually some combination of coming from another practice where either they got injured or they hit a plateau or they were looking for more meditation or whatever it was that 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 brought them into seeking the, the slower stiller form yeah um so a lot of people that listen to this podcast are teachers yoga teachers and i often talk about the um, fact that you don't just have to teach public classes you can there's plenty more avenues you can explore when it comes to having a career in yoga and one of the things that really struck me as i mentioned at the start about your approach uh, was how was how you you ran your teacher trainings Mm. so i've been to a few teacher trainings now and um, they all have their their strengths and all have their styles but I'm fascinated by your style because, um, well, firstly, it's very professional, uh, very well ran. And I was interested the way 
you <laughs> when we went on the teacher training you said from the outset the about for, just for example for the people listening as a little kind of fly on the wall um about questions so you said if you have a question first ask yourself in your mind before you put your hand up is it a question <laughs> and then and then ask yourself is it relevant to what's happening right now and um or you know is it a question or is it a statement and i thought well, i i was a bit struck i thought wow i've never heard anyone say that before normally people say listen you've got questions just don't bother putting your hand up just shout it out so it was completely different to what i'd experienced and um it's therefore led to a very efficient way of getting through the curriculum um in the in the time that we had so i'm interested to learn more about your your philosophy or your approach to teacher training if that question makes sense yeah um what might be called one's pedagogical approach <laughs> right <laughs> um yeah I was smiling uh, when you were at re, 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 uh, reviewing the, the, my sort of suggestions and requests around how to handle questions. Um, first off, thank you for your kind words already about the, the training itself. But um, yeah. I can't remember if I shared this little vignette with you uh, in your training, but there's a, there's a teaching vignette that I've used over the years from, from the Zen tradition where a, uh, a student or a seeker comes to the, a Zen master and says, Master, what's the, what is the most important thing in life? And the master pauses and sort of thinks for a moment. He says, the most important thing is wisdom. And, and the student says, well, okay, how do you get wisdom? Again, the master pauses and he says, wisdom comes from good judgment. And the student still doesn't get it, so he has to, has to ask again. He says, well... Okay, good judgment's valuable, but how do you get good judgment? And the Zen master just says, bad judgment. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of what I try to bring into the organization, the delivery, the management of a group dynamic um, is just born out of years of doing it and seeing what works and what doesn't so work so well and just constantly reevaluating how things have gone um and i would say that's one of the things that actually motivates me the most is that uh, or inspires me about teacher teaching training specifically is that um each training is a is an ongoing creative process um like a creative work of art where i'm polishing it editing it uh, bringing in new stuff changing things to subbing things out um and uh and so there's always that element to, at least to how i think about teaching that um after a training i'll review it i was like what what part of the lecture did just didn't fly that that time what how could i do that differently um mm. and regarding questions i just found that um there's it's a little bit like, I mean, I've never worked in the corporate world, but I've heard from friends that there's some styles of holding meetings where um, at a meeting, if everybody is permitted to share something, it's deemed a successful meeting, regarding, regardless of whether there was any clear outcome, any clear objective that was met. <laughs> so, so sometimes in the yoga world, that can happen too, where 
uh, people have a great time because everyone gets to talk, but you know, you walk out and there's just sort of a, a mishmash of a word salad rattling around in everyone's head and no clear sense of what was actually going on. Um, mm. So, yeah, I mean, and I've also used this phrase to describe my trainings for a long time that they're now four days each, but they are, they're short, condensed, somewhat espresso-like trainings where there's a lot of concentration in a short period of time. So just to, yeah. to keep the concentration strong and not too diluted, it, I have to come in and um, make, make requests around participation from students so that people um, can stay on track and, um, and really get through all the material. Yeah. No, it worked brilliantly because I think that um, I've been on trainings where people do put their hands up and they, uh, me included, and I realized halfway through my question, one, it's not relevant probably, and two, it's more of a statement. I just wanted to say something. Yeah. And then you always have that person in class that you'll get a handful of people that are the ones that ask the questions and no one else asks anything and they just end up taking over. And um, I have actually been one of those people before. Um, wanting to almost ask a question but sneakily what I'm doing is trying to show off my knowledge <laughs> yeah. so um, so it's 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 you need someone who is as in a trainer who is going to sometimes tell you what you need not necessarily let everyone have a free-for-all right. um, so I, I think that's that's really important um, sometimes yeah you know sometimes people um, want the trainer to be uh, like uh, really open and just sit sit around chatting, but then you you can waste a lot of time. So it, I thought I thought it worked brilliantly. Um, yeah, one th um, one of the things you mentioned on the training was, and a few people actually had this question for you, was what you did outside of Yin, and um, I thought it was quite interesting because a lot of people I know think yoga is it just do yoga and you'll have a healthy body but it was interesting you you mentioned you do other stuff outside of you you were saying you do kettlebells and, and what, what else do you do in terms of keeping healthy yeah um well you know before i answer specifically i just would say um this is the, the, in some ways this question is a theme in very of a theme and variation where um just like teaching i'm kind of always trying to figure out how to polish it, refine it, um, improve it, add more uh, value. Uh, in terms of what I do in my own practice, um, I, keep, I, I have a similar approach in that I'm always curious about things, I'm trying new things, and trying to integrate um, maybe more efficient things into, into a, a comprehensive training. So... Um, yeah, you mentioned kettlebells. I've been playing with kettlebells for a bunch of years now. Um, a lot of body weight stuff, pull-ups and things. Uh, mm. And then the last couple of years, let's say last year, I, I got turned on to um, something that I have to spell it out so you don't, your listeners don't mishear me. But it's a an exercise called rucking. That's R, <laughs> as in Ralph. <laughs> R-U-C-K. What is that? <laughs> rucking. It's, what is, it's short for rucksacking. Um, and it's, apparently okay. it's how the military have trained people for for decades. Um, it's just a backpack with a lot of weight in it. And you walk around for an hour or two. Um, and so I have a dog and I just thought, oh, that would be kind of a handy way of getting a little more exercise while walking my dog. 
um, and it, it's proven to be phenomenal. Uh, it's it's they call it active resistance training because you're you know you're actively um, being having to bear the the thirty forty pounds of weight on your back um, while moving yeah. around. So it's great for core work, core strength, but also gets your heart heart rate up quite nicely. So there's there's been that piece, and then I don't want to. I, I always uh, hesitate to um, kind of drop gear-specific names. Um, I, I don't want to feel like I'm pushing product, but I just discovered a kind of a, another physical training tool called Base Blocks. I don't know if you've seen these. They, they're like mm-hmm. two poles with that s- sit firmly on a base, a wooden base, um, with two handles on each pole, so that you can do sort of do gymnastic-like balancing exercises um so um, i haven't really been able to get into that yet but that's kind of the 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 new thing on the horizon interesting i've just been to google baseball oh yeah oh yeah they're they're really i've seen a lot of people use them um and they take up no room at all exactly you can do you can do dips on them you can do um Handstands. Yeah, you can do loads of stuff. Push up to handstands. <laughs> they do. Hopefully, <laughs> they do. There's a whole thing of doing pistol squats on them, uh, standing on one. Ooh, that's hardcore. It is. <laughs> uh, yeah, the weighted vesting is interesting, or the rucking, because I've been thinking that I don't. I do loads of bodyweight stuff, but I I sold all of my weights, my barbell, everything because it was taking up too much room. I thought, nah, I'm just going to use my body weight, slow my tempo down instead of using weight. But a weighted vest, as long as it's comfortable or the rucksack is comfortable, then you could it you could, you could use it for everything. You could do squats in it. You could do pull ups. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, it is um, great. I mean, and and it's also I mean, you know I mean my sort of the. The um, the litmus test for me is what 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 improves functionality, like mm. health functionality. And um, yeah. I I travel a lot. I'm usually carrying my my gear with me wherever I'm going. I don't I don't like to check bags. So I I just noticed a huge difference in my own capacity to just get through airports and get to point A to point B um, with stuff on my back after after having rucked some. Yeah. Yeah, if it's transportable as well, that's going to... Um, yeah, functionality is so important, but it is. I think it's important to um, yeah change the weight, change the resistance that you're using. Um, so I want to... That's fitness. Check that box. <laughs> <laughs> Physical health. Um, diet. Now, you mentioned something quite interesting uh, in relation to Chinese medicine, talking about... Diet. I'm gonna, uh, I suppose, approach the elephant, approach the elephant in the room, or at least acknowledge the elephant in the room, which is um, a lot of teachers that go to trainings. The conversation comes up about the V word, veganism, mm-hmm. and a lot of people that are vegan, which I was myself, and I'm still, I'm not in any camp at all. That really, I, I don't like to identify with any or belong to any. Uh, food politics, I suppose. Um, so, what am I, where am I going with this? What, what, I'm, what my question is, because a lot of vegans are very, they're very fundamental, because it's a really hard choice to stick to, and therefore, when you make such a hard lifestyle decision in terms of convenience, you really want everyone else to be in the same camp, and I, I think it's an honourable cause. Um, so, I wanted to touch on that with you and really uh, find out 
what you mentioned to us. I think it was a book you said, um, Wood Becomes Water, and talking about how Chinese medicine and diet. Um, so my question is, firstly, if I can ask you, it's kind of prying personally, but what do you, uh, do you follow any type of diet? Um, do I follow any particular type of diet? Uh, yes and no. Um, as you're winding up that question there, Kev, I, I, <laughs> I was, you talked about the elephant in the room. In uh, Boston, our, in our subway system, there's one train. Um, it would be like the Lewis, a Lewis line, but there's one train where uh, there's two train tracks for the train cars to, to run on, but then there's a third rail that provides the train its electricity. And that third yeah. rail is um, very dangerous. If you step on it, um, if you happen to uh, urinate on it, it's a, you, you'll meet an instant death. <laughs> it's like the fast, fast, <laughs> fastest way to kill yourself is to piss on the third rail. So you're, you're actually, um, yeah, I know this is sort of where I could be dangling a toe on the third rail in terms of yogic, um, <laughs> yogically legitimate uh, credibility. Um, when I so to, so to come to your question a little bit, I, I should just say too, I've I have probably followed or tried every diet that I know of for a period of time. And with veganism, I I had I went into an early phase in my yoga life of doing raw vegan for a year or two, then cooked vegan for maybe another year or two, and it was only. Um, when I got into acupuncture school that I started to think differently about it, about what to eat. Um, hmm. So for me, I would say when I got into the yogic journey is that's when I was introduced to um, the kind of the ethical karmic rationale for a diet that tried to minimize harm to any kind of sentient being. And mm. I was totally on board with that. It, it just seemed like the a, a, a rationally, ethically correct thing to do. Um, but uh, when I got into acupuncture school, I, th there was sort of a mirror reflected back to me on the state of my own health. And um, I just wasn't in, in robust health at that time. I was... Uh, probably protein deficient to some degree. Um, I had some like chronic skin issues of rashes and irritations. Um, my energy was chronically low. Like I just had a real mm. naps aside. I just wasn't able to get through the day <laughs> with a surplus of energy. And um, and it was as more as we got to learn about how the Chinese or the ancient Chinese thought about diet that many of us who came to school as vegetarians or vegans um, started to consider reintroducing animal protein. And, um, you know, I, for myself, kind of we, it was a group of us that kind of decided to do this experiment um, together. Um, and by and large, many of us reported that we just felt much more balanced. Um, a lot of health issues were st started to clear up. Um, 
And so, yeah, that was sort of, I guess, when I started to go tack back more towards what I might call an omnivorous eating pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, and it isn't without, you know, concern. Like, I still hold the ethical um, interests of animal rights and, um, and all that. And, I, I, and this is where, again, it becomes a bit of a third rail. Um, it's hard to defend it's in some ways it's a hard diet to defend particularly if you eat in, in eating meat you know that you're contributing to global emissions particularly if it's red meat that um, greenhouse emissions that contribute to global warming um, so finding ways to do it in a conscious manner is, is not not so easy but mm. um, in terms of my effectiveness as a person you know I'm, I can definitely say I'm a kinder more balanced nicer person um eating a more omnivorous way okay that's a solid answer <laughs> did i li- <laughs> i mean i think i think you, i think you missed the third rail you just I, missed it. well i don't know you will see i don't know i haven't followed your <laughs> podcast too closely i don't know what kind of comment threads get generated here but um no everyone's been nice so far yeah <laughs> I mean, it's, um, it's, you know, I will say, and I don't know if I brought this up in the training, but um, the thing that, the one thing that in the last four or five years that I've been most interested in around diet is not so much what's consumed, but when you're not consuming food. Um, so the practice of intermittent fasting, going maybe hmm. 16 to 24 hours on a frequent basis without calories. That, yeah. to me, seems a very, very compelling uh, area to explore with yes. with a caveat that it's it's not going to be for everybody but um am i you know I, i'm also a clinical acupuncturist and um get to work with people one-on-one like like that and i've seen remarkable improvements in people uh, by just adopting a, a restricted eating window you eat the same amount it's just restricting that that window of consumption to maybe six to seven hours and maybe doing a longer fast once a week and things like blood pressure um, blood sugars all these things start to normalize yeah i completely agree i think we can eat anytime we want and that's the downside is we never give our digestive system a rest i i do the same i practice intermittent fasting so I don't eat breakfast. I don't eat till the afternoon. I mean, if I'm really hungry and I want to eat breakfast, I'll eat it. But I, I agree with you. I think there's massive benefit in time-restricted eating. eating. Um, Josh, normally, uh, and I, I know I gave you a, a general idea of to, we discussed like what I'd like to chat to you about. And normally I um, round off the podcast asking someone what their plans for the future's, future is. But I had, I had a bit of a Larry King inspiration today. Larry King, if you don't know, anyone knows him, he's like, would you describe him as, um, I suppose he's a talk show, talk show god? Yeah, isn't that be fair he, to say? He's sort of a late night talk show uh, deity, sure. He, yeah, he's the king. And so um, he, he does a thing, which I'm basically, um, let's say I'm, I've been inspired by him. So, um, I mean, you could say ripping them off, but <laughs> we like to use the word, I like to use the word inspired. He does this thing at the end of his um, interviews where he does like a, a, if you only knew quick fire questions. So I've got a few, I'm going to rattle them off to you. So it's basically what 
comes to mind. Go um, on, go on, Kevin. Yeah, go on. Yeah, I know it's, it's, it's risky. Um, so they're nothing too prime. So first one is, what was your first job? My first job. First ever job. Um, where I did labor for 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 cash remuneration. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, I would say I I mow. I got I got paid a small allowance for for mowing my my family lawn. Okay. What age were you? Uh, roughly. Thirteen, twelve, something like that. Good. But I, okay. I will say when I was in college, I did. I also delivered the New York Times to a few dormitories at college. So that that could have been my first official outside outside of the family business kind of thing. Yeah, public job. Okay, brilliant. Person from history you wish you could take to lunch? Uh, this is going to add a whole layer of complexity. The person I would love to take to lunch would probably be Christopher Hitchens. Oh, God. I thought, oh, okay, that's, that's all right. That's fine. I thought it was going to be like a lot worse. I wouldn't want to, um, I, I, don't, I would not be able to keep up with him uh, uh, in terms of. Man. <laughs> intellectually or, or um, uh, inebri- like in terms of quantities of things that he would be drinking <laughs> yeah yeah he's a, he's a legend but long, he's a legend shall I say long live Hitch yeah 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 exactly um, if anyone wants to know, know, don't know Christopher Hitchens if you put in Hitch slapped into YouTube it's basically him just owning people which is enjoyable um, your biggest pet peeve my biggest pet peeve um, that's a tough one. Um, it's funny because Hitchens had a um, one of his long longest friends was the the writer Martin Amos, who was the son of the British comic writer Kingsley Amos. I don't know if you've ever read Kingsley, but no. Kingsley was known for his grievances. <laughs> grievances right. in humanity like it seemed yeah. it was almost like everything was an irritation to him and when <laughs> i discovered him in my you know early 20s i i, I resonated very strongly with that as because like, i was annoyed by everything everybody was wrong everything everybody was a fool um i'd say the the yoga's mellowed me some um what would be a pet i'm sorry i'm i'm, I'm trying to buy myself some time you know, just yesterday, I was walking down a street. The mm-hmm. Context here. Last week, I was teaching a silent meditation retreat in the Berkshire Mountains in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of the retreat, we strongly encouraged, it was not compulsory, but we strongly encouraged participants to turn over their cell phones. And we, mm-hmm. the t- myself and my other teacher, Terry, did this as well. Um, so most of us did it, and we it was you know a, a week without the gadget, and uh, we all commented towards the end that none of us wanted it back. <laughs> it's just it was wow, something yeah. that like we we re- we remembered what it was like prior to the the colonization of our time by these things, and um, so anyway we got back on retreat, and then I was back in my office yesterday, and I had to go out down. A, a, commercial street in Boston called Newbury Street and I was walking down this beautiful late summer day and just couldn't believe the number of people that were like zombies just mm-hmm. sort of 
stumbling down the street with her head in the screen. And, you know, so I'm not, I'm not judging them per se, because I think this is a, a thing that many people, including myself, are struggling with. But it's a sad, it's a sad condition, I think. And while I was walking down, a, a woman, probably around my age, literally tripped over a, a slab of rock that was a bench. It was a, a rectangular stone bench. She tripped over it and went head over heels. Oh. And she could have suffered a concussion. She checked her lip was almost bleeding, um, or may have been mm. bleeding. Um, and you know that 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 in a nutshell, that's sort of um, the moment we're in. And I think yeah. you know it, it, we're 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 paying the price f- in terms of our attention for ourselves and also for how we get on. So the other pet peeve is, and it's kind of related to this because it's a kind of a, a myopic thing that people get into, but the the tribalism on, on online and the the, the lack of um, civility and charitableness, uh, the way people interact with each other online, really also saddens me. So that gave you a multilateral answer there, um, but it took me a while to get to it. <laughs> that was good. Um, okay. If you could go back to when you were 18, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give yourself? That's my second last question. Hmm. Go back to myself as 18. Um, It's a tough one because... I feel like I got I had some good advice given to me then. Um, mm. Basically, eighteen was when I was starting university, so I'm gonna like sort of fudge the, the time frame a little bit and say like that early period of my life, yeah. in and around college, for me was filled with a tremendous tremendous amount of anxiety, um, not knowing what I wanted to do with myself. There was a sense of go- when you went to university, you had to have you know your 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 career set. You know, you wanted to know where you're going, what you're going to do, what you're going to become. And I didn't have a clue. I uh, had no idea. And it was, it literally kept me up at night. Um, and I remember seeing, visiting a career counselor and she gave me, you may have taken this yourself, the Brooks Myers, Briggs Myers personality yeah. test. And um, I don't remember what my profile was, but she basically said, you know, you know, here's the thing I can tell you. Uh, the people that score within your type you tend to be seekers and you generally don't figure your life out until you're 40 she said so the best thing you can do now is just follow your whims (laughs) and that was right around the time that that i was uh getting drawn to um going to asia and studying yoga and things like that so um that I don't have regrets in that I, I took those risks and just went abroad for, for an indeterminate or um, undefined period of time. And looking back, I'm like, I don't know how I did that. I could never do something like that now. But um, so, yeah, follow your whims or, you know, trust the process or uh, they all sound kind of like kind of bland platitudes right now but um particularly at 18 where 
I think people maybe feel pressure that they have to have it all together. You don't. Mm-hmm. As a 45-year-old now, I can say, still don't have it all together. It's a, it's a work in progress, and it probably will continue to be that way. Brilliant. If you weren't a yoga teacher, what would you be? Um, if I weren't a yoga teacher, I was on course to become a, an English, a secondary school English teacher. Uh, hmm. so just bef- when I was one of the years when I was in Taiwan after my year in India I was applying for graduate programs actually in the UK to study get a master's in literature um, and uh, and there was something about the courses and, and, and back then postmodernism was in its heyday so there was you know post-structuralist deconstruction of Derrida's theory of legitimacy in post-colonial texts and things <laughs> you get the idea <laughs> and like i just my eyes went cross-eyed in the applications and i said i just i can't do this so um but i i did love literature a lot and um wanted to sort of ignite that passion in, in students in a way that i didn't have it presented to me when i was in secondary school hmm. okay we well, didn't stiff too far past you know, you are a teacher, but um, yeah, that was great. Josh, that's it. That's it. I'm free. Do, would you, do you, yeah, you're free. You're a free man. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Kevin, that was great. I really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for listening. I told you it was a fun one. Um, I hope you learned lots about Josh. And yeah, go check out his website, joshsummers.net. Next week, ooh, I've got a, a barn burner for you. I've always wanted to say that, barn burner. Do you see it like the UFC? Taylor Hunt. If you like Ashtanga, tune in for this one. Um, but even so, Taylor as a man, he's just got a phenomenal story. Um, really um, powerful speaker um, and just a, a great guy. To be honest, this is one of the podcasts I was actually quite nervous for. Um, and uh, so it was a relief to find out that um, he was really easy to get on with so yeah tune in next week for Taylor Hunt I hope you have a fabulous week as always if you could leave me a review I'd really appreciate it any feedback let me know um, good or otherwise it really helps um, your, your opinions matter and what make this podcast happen so look after yourself chat to you next week bye